Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, my guests are Barbara Johnson from the MCU Board of Directors and Education Task Force, and Carolyn Randazzo, also of the MCU Education Task Force. Today, we'll be talking about the latest actions of the task force and going back to school and breaking the school to prison pipeline during the COVID-19 pandemic. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Good. Well, it's been a busy summer for everybody concerned about kids and schools. Uh, So let's get started with uh, the, the list of demands that MCU's Education Task Force has developed specifically for the 2020-2021 school year. How did these develop and what are they? Okay, well, our Education Task Force demands came about because we had heard in different conversations with parents and community members their concerns about school opening virtually uh, or hybrid, as they call it, you know, partially virtually and partially at home. And there were some things that really stood out that, and that also involved equity or inequity, depending on how they, um, how the uh, school year goes. So we decided we needed to make some demands of the community and of school districts and administrations and anyone uh, involved with our kids. And so um, we felt like it was such a pivotal point in their lives. And there were so many questions and so many, you know, uncertainties about it. And so we, of course, are always working to ensure academic and social success for all of our students. And so that's what the demands reflect. So we had four. um, And so we started off with reliable broadband access for all. We heard, you know, last March when school all of a sudden closed because of the pandemic, that that was a huge concern. Um, I think it's somewhere around 15 to 20% of students in Missouri don't have reliable internet access. So even if school was doing some virtual education at that point, they couldn't tap into it. So that was a real concern. And so that was our first demand for every home to have reliable broadband access to treat it just like our water or our gas or electricity. And so we knew that that needed to be considered a public utility for the kids. Also, the second demand was that parents must be at the table for the planning for the 2021 school year. You know, parents went everywhere from, I'm glad my kid is at home, where I can work with them with their schoolwork. I, you know, I'm at home too right now because my work is shut down, to, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I, you know, I don't have no experience with education. I don't know how how to handle this. And so, you know, parents are their first teachers of a child, and they know how their child can work and what will work for them. So we wanted to make sure that this just wasn't a top-down decision, that parents were involved, and they could help the kids be successful. And kind of growing out of that demand was the third one, that special education services must be provided. 
our, our students who have special needs, um, they, you know, they already are struggling many times in school and getting those services and getting their needs met. And then all of a sudden they're at home with parents with no special education background or, or parents who are special educators and both were struggling. And if it's a physical disability with physical uh, therapy involved or speech therapy, trying to do that virtually doesn't hardly work. So we wanted to really shine the spotlight on that. Their services are prescribed by their individual education plan that is a legal document. It has to be met. So we wanted to make sure to shine the light on that. And then the fourth one, of course, gets back to our school to prison pipeline campaign. We felt demanded that any suspensions from the 2019-2020 school year, those long-term suspensions that many times go into the next school year, they should be erased. The kids are out of school anyway. So, you know, to, to, if they were going to come back in person, you know, then no, no, you can't because you're suspended. You know, there's been a hue and cry that kids need to be in school, but yet you're going to suspend them, you know, during this time. Plus, you know, let's have a moratorium. We want, we demand a moratorium on suspensions in this next, in this just now starting school year. You know, if they're virtually being educated, well, they're not in school anyway. And if it's the hybrid, they need to be in school anytime that school is in, in session in the building. And of course, we would like to see suspensions eliminated completely just as, as part of the, the discipline code of every school district, but for sure in this next school year. Those are our demands. So once these are written up, uh, how did you publicize them? How did you get them out to the public and, and who did you deliver them to? Okay, well, then kind of the next step that happened, we're part of two coalitions. And one is the Keep Kids in Class Coalition and the other one is redefining K-12 STL. And so our demands were kind of rolled into their demands and they don't sound exactly like our demands and some of their demands go even farther or they have additional ones. And so we felt like that that with the larger coalition that that would be a way to, to get the word out a little bit better than we could. We will be sending them to some of our target school districts and we know the school districts are under a lot of pressure right now, getting ready for the start of the school year, but we wanna get this out there to the administrators and to the school boards. Um, the two coalitions I mentioned, the Keep Kids in Class Coalition, um, they are really focused on school safety. And so, of course, our, um, our demands about ending our moratorium on out-of-school suspension really rolled into that. And so um, that was just a natural fit to put that in there. And then the um, um, Reimagine K-12 STL, they were more uh, focused on actually how school was going to happen. And so our demands about um, uh, broadband access, about special education services really fit in with that. And so those have been um, put out into the community with social media, of course, on Facebook, we had a children's march, and um, they were the demands were made then, um, were publicized then. We had um, another teach-in, I guess is the best way to describe it, action with um, with both of those groups, and 
all the demands were put out there then from those two groups. So um, that's how they've gotten out there. And we're going to continue to get them out there. We have plans for letters to the editor. And like I said, uh, communicating with the school districts and school boards um, about these demands. Okay. And ha have you heard, heard back from any, any school boards or teachers or, or parents on, on how some of these things are shaking out in, in districts? Uh, so for instance, like the broadband access, I assume that takes some cooperation with like the service providers. Absolutely. Um, and, and so how are, how are some districts handling that across the region? Do you know? Obviously, this is St. Louis, so that means there are lots of little districts. Yes, there so, are. <laughs> so what, what, are, what are we hearing from, from districts on this issue? Yeah. Well, mostly what I've heard, um, it has been through, um, you know, the uh, television, news, and um, other media. And it really sounds like the districts are really making an effort to do what they can. Um, I know Ferguson Florissant School District that I live in, everyone, every family is getting a hotspot, a Wi-Fi hotspot that, that's part of their school supplies because they'll be all virtual. And I think most of the other districts are doing that also. Last spring, I know our uh, internet providers in town, they provided free service um, at that point. Now, I don't know if that's going to continue, but it seems like that is an issue that a lot of people are working on, not only in the education community, but um, in the political realm. I think I've heard from St. Louis County has talked about it, the state, even up to the federal level. That's a longer term thing um, to really get the infrastructure in there. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of awareness around that, that people just don't have it. And this is, you know, Missouri, rural, urban, we always have that um, um, split there kind of with issues. And this is something that affects both. Generally in our uh, more urban areas, it's the cost that's a, a detriment for people. In the rural areas, it's just getting the cables or the fiber optic networks to the homes, you know, that that's the, the uh, detriment there. So this affects everybody. So, um, but I think there's been some movement on that and certainly a lot of awareness that we, that schools know not all of our kids have access and they're working on that. Public libraries are also providing um, hotspots to be checked out. So there's a lot of resources for that. And, but we, we have to keep at it. You know, a hotspot is a good thing, but that needs to be, it needs to be strengthened. And, and again, it needs to be considered a utility you know, like our gas or our electric. So, and when it comes to parents' involvement, this was the second point on, on mm -hmm. the demands. Um, yes. Obviously, the, I think one of the biggest challenges uh, throughout the country is that uh, the, the kids being in school impacts parents being at work and vice versa. So, so what, what kind of uh, things are we hearing from parents? Are, are they able to to get their concerns met by school districts, or are they having trouble sort of being part of this conversation? Barbara, have you heard anything on that? No, I have not, other than, it, like you were saying earlier about um, the news media, I've seen a lot on the news media about parent, parents being interviewed in, in, in this situation. So there are a lot of parents that don't have the resources they need in order to support them going to work and their child at home. So I've heard a lot of that. 
um, aspect of it. And then, of course, on the flip side, where there are parents who are a little bit, a, a lot more financially able to have pods, you know, where it's three, four kids and they hire, uh, you know, teachers to, to do that for them. So other than that, I have not heard a lot personally on that issue. But, but it, it is a big, uh, it's a lot of confusion out there and not a lot of generalized or centralized support, I think, from the school districts. Parents are kind of on their own to a certain extent. If you don't choose to go back to school according to their guidelines, then you're kind of on your own to do the rest of the research. I, um, you know, know that, and again, I talk about the school district I live in, um, but I know that uh, they did have a lot of parent groups come in, different focus groups and all of that. They did a lot of it. Well, I guess they didn't have them come in, but probably the way we're meeting on Zoom and surveys and just many things to get the feel of what the community wanted. And just anecdotally, people I've talked to, they're like, I'm just afraid to send my kids back to school right now. You know, that we're going to make it work somehow. Um, either from the fact that they're working from home too, or they have, you know, relatives who can um, be with the children during the day while they're at work and so on. But I, I know that the parents were surveyed, were asked for information, any way that they could get it, either through a virtual meeting or emails, you know, what they wanted. And um, so I, you know, I think there's, there can always be more parent input in my mind. You know, um, you can't give too many opportunities to parents to, to, to voice their opinions about it and to feel comfortable, you know, calling up their school board member or whoever they know in administration saying, this isn't working, what can we do? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, is always um, uh, something that needs more attention to it, for sure, including about the special education services. Um, the parents not only have to deal with their local school district, but then with the special school district also. And so they've got that extra step that they need to take. I haven't heard as much about what special school district is doing. I know last spring there were a lot of very frustrated parents that weren't hearing much of anything um, from special school district. So I hope that they've had the time to up their, their involvement, uh, and I mean special school district, to get their parents, you know, ready for this and to somehow figure a way out a way to get the special services to the kids if it does require some in-person um, work with them. And then as far as our suspensions, I mean, that's been ongoing for uh, quite a few years that we've worked on that. Um, it, I hate to say this, but anyway, it does kind of take a step back at this time since most of the kids aren't in school. So um, my hope is that we'll really be able to make some ground on that um, for when they do come back. And we'll re and you know, like I said earlier, we're all concerned about the kids not being in school. So why do we want to use that as a way to, uh, as consequences for their behavior or a way to change behavior? So maybe that'll become more apparent now. Right. So I guess there were two things that were, I, I didn't realize that there may still be suspensions on the books from March, I guess yes. that that could carry over. So we're not even talking the end of the school year. We're talking the middle of, of, right. of the spring semester that could carry over. Right. Uh, those, those are hanging over kids' heads. 
And do you, do you know if suspensions included not being able to participate virtually or uh, that, that's a question I have. I, I don't right. know. I'm not for sure. I would hope not, you know, um, because I did hear that from some teacher friends of like the kids aren't logging in, but I do think they have more in place now. You know, like people said last spring in March, that was crisis education. You know, this was just, we've got to get enough together so the kids have something to do to kind of keep them going. Um, and I think they've had the time um, to develop programs and how they're going to deliver this to kids since then. So, you know, um, I don't have to deal with that. My kids are grown, and but uh, I try to remain sympathetic to it, um, that uh, what would need to be done. But I feel like our schools have had some time to really put some good plans together and um, get it out there for the kids. So we'll find out in the next few weeks. They're all going to be starting. So we'll see what happens with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's let's turn to one of the new things that the uh, Education Task Force has been working on, and that's the resource for families and teachers. So how, how did that come about, and, and what is it? it? And it seems like it's kind of perfect timing. This is one more th- uh, thing that parents can use at home, huh? Right, it is, and that was our goal. Um, last spring, one of our organizers said, what can we do? You know, and I think everybody was in that, that position at that time, because the work that MCU does is personal. It's, you know, relationships with people. And all of a sudden, we can't make those meetings to meet up with people and have a one-on-one conversation with them. So how can we keep this going, you know? And so one of our organizers, um, Dr. Dietra Weisbaker said, could we put something together, some activities, something like that, you know? And so um, I... Being a retired teacher and several of our education task force members are retired teachers also. It's like, oh, yeah, we can do this. And so we put together. It's not very long because we knew parents had enough on their plate already. And so it's not very long. Uh, I think we ended up with about five lessons. And, you know, they're pretty open-ended. And can most of them can apply to all age levels. So in one of them, they can write some poetry, but it's still to give a little information and get the kids thinking about their rights is one of them. Um, what is what is fair, what is just, and just to kind of get their feet wet and may, and hopefully start some conversation um, in the family about, you know, fairness and equity, even if they don't use the, that word equity, although it's everywhere, and just to kind of think about those things and, you know, do a little art project, make a poster, whatever, maybe write some poetry. And then Barbara was instrumental in getting some more uh, resources together. So you want to talk about that, Barbara? Well, yeah, I've been in early childhood. That was uh, one, of my, one of my many jobs, and I, I did it for over 24 years. So um, I, we were always housed in an early childhood building, so I was with the Parents as Teachers program. And so we did home visits, and we always had to have lots of resources and information to give to parents because I even had parents who were homeschooling. So, you know, homeschooling has been around <laughs> for, you know, many, many years. So there's always kind of been something out there for parents to do. But for us, we uh, since they, the organization wanted to put something out there to help kids, help parents and kids, um, and especially in the area in which we are involved in, <clears throat> which is justice issues and tolerance issues and things like that. So I did come up with several 
websites that that I did pass on. Uh, one of them was called tolerance.org, and it was to educate children and youth to be active participants in in a diverse democracy. And it was geared to all ages and there was lots of information out there. I actually went on that website to see what it was like. So it was very parent friendly, very user friendly. So I always previewed any information or resources that I gave out to see the legitimacy, the ease and the organization of it. So I always did that, which was, which was very helpful because you don't want to give resources that people have to labor through. So another one was whereteachers.com, and that was a free printables that was on that website. That's W-E-A-R-E teachers.com. And the resources was for teaching about inclusion, diversity, and equity. And like I said, this came for, this was uh, available for various ages, all ages. And the younger you start, the better. Uh, so the another one was um, edutopia.org, which is teaching young children about bias, diversity, and social justice. So again, that was another good user-friendly site uh, for parents to start early teaching their children about diversity, inclusion, equity, all of those things with great activities that went along with it. And of course, I also recommend just Google you know, I would say Google, you know, uh, activities for my child as a toddler, as a three-year-old, as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old, or 15-year-old. They're all out there. So those are the kind of resources that I passed on. And um, pe parents usually on their phones anyway, I, when I was a home visitor, uh, I would sit there and parents would look up things on their phone right there while I was there. You know, so making it easy and convenient and with all the technology that we had, we have now that's helpful. Now, I can say that there are some parents who I've heard say that their kids on Zoom don't always get on when at the time they're supposed to because of some difficulties here or there. Um, but as far as the resources go, usually when you Google it, it'll come right up. I what? believe that there is a link uh, at the MCU website and um, that they can access these activities. That's MCU, uh, stlewis.org. And I know right now it's, it's on the front page, but I think it's also under the resources tab um, is, is another way to, to access it. So are there any sort of important things to remember when kids are, when parents are talking to kids about racism and advocacy that, can be kind of a sticky uh, topic for, for some folks. What, what are some things that you know, parents need to keep in mind when, when, when uh, touching on these subjects, especially with little kids? I would think first listen to your child, you know, and listen to what they have to say first and take your cues from there. Mm -hmm. um, I am a big proponent of reading. There's some excellent books and there are more coming out all the time. And we cite those in the Just Kids program, too, mm -hmm. that um, that's a good jumping off point, I feel like, just to read this book and, and, and think about what and ask the kids what they're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I would start with the kids is what I would do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think sometimes with kids, we want to answer a whole lot more than they're actually asking. Right. You know? And and 
my experience too has been kind of almost to, to turn it back to the child. Well, how would you feel if that was you, you know, and, and personalize it that way. And these resources actually are so age appropriate and they answer so many questions that kids normally ask at that age about race and about color and their friends and hair and all kinds of issues that kids are exposed to. A lot of these resources really address that in age appropriate ways because research has been ongoing for a long time about these particular issues and how to educate our children on them. Naturally, the younger, the better, but, but wherever you get in, whatever age it is, it's, there's lots of support out there for the parent. And like Carolyn said, books, 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 because they're all there. They're in the libraries. <laughs> we pay for library service, and it's one of the greatest resources we have because librarians are so intelligent. They can gear you to whatever resource it is you need. They even have activity boxes that are age appropriate that address some of these issues as well. So I don't think we utilize libraries as much as we need to with our kids. That was one thing with me being in the Parents as Teachers program that we that we focused on a lot is using that particular resource to teach those and support the parent. Okay, good, good. And, and kids are very observant too. And so I, I would guess if you ask a child, about something, they're going to say, well, I saw this happen, and I saw that this happen. Those are, those are probably good starting points, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Yep. So let's turn to some of the other more longer-term work that, that the task force deals with. And, and one of the things is, uh, it, you know, the demands that, that uh, Keep Kids in Class Coalition have made sound a lot like what, what we have put forward in um, you know, wor working on breaking the school to prison pipeline and specifically working with school districts on their memorandums of understanding. So remind us what an MOU is and okay. what, what school districts are we still looking to, to, do, to do more work with? Okay, so an MOU is a memorandum of understanding and, you know, school, school districts, businesses, lots of entities have MOUs with different people. It's kind of like a contract but it's an understanding, we, when we say an MOU, we're talking about the contract between the school district and their local police department to provide school resource officers. And so what we found um, in the work that we're doing to break the school to prison pipeline is that um, you know, our schools have school resource officers as a way to keep children safe. And the research is showing that that's not always the situation, that they really don't always keep our kids safe from the day-to-day -day things that happen at school. Um, it has been, it is one of the portals into the school-to-prison pipeline, absolutely. And so what we're asking for with the MOU is to be very specific about the duties of the, of the school resource officer and what the school is doing. One of the first superintendents we took our model MOU to, it didn't pound the desk, but definitely pointed at the part in the model MOU and said school must be in charge of discipline. And so we found that many school districts had very, um, oh, 
I don't want to say vague, but not very specific at any rate, MOUs with their school resource officers. That it left it wide open for what they could and couldn't do. We've all seen the horrible videos from other places. And thank God it hasn't been here in our area. I don't want it to be anywhere. But where, you know, you're having a problem with, with a kid, well, you've got this police officer down the hall. Let's get him in here and, or her in here to deal with this child. You know, and so it's one of those instances, I feel, that we're expecting police officers to do something they're not trained for. And so, but they are trained to use force. So eventually that's what's going to happen. So we want to, we feel like, and we use resources from uh, the Department of Justice, from the National Juvenile Justice Network, um, who else, several different entities to come up with this model MOU that is very specific about what school, school's responsibility in these situations that unfortunately our kids do get into at school. And then when is it time to call in the school resource officer? Also, we want school resource officers to be trained in child development. You know, we've been talking about kids of different ages um, today and we know that an eight-year-old is going to react differently than a 15-year-old is. But probably both reactions are normal for that age. You know, but whereas if you're used to dealing with people outside of school and, you know, how they react, you might think, oh, well, this is being violent. This is, you know, this is not the right behavior. They're a threat or whatever. And so... We want these SROs, if they're going to be in our schools, we want them to know, oh, well, this is how kids act sometimes. And it's not that they're going to escalate into anything more than that. But, you know, we've all seen a kid throw a tantrum before. It's pretty intense at the moment. But, you know, it's pretty typical, though, of very young children. So we want to specifics the duties of the SRO and then and make it very clear, very specific. We wanted also due process rights in there. We also want, um, I'm trying to think what else we had, training. We wanted, um, of course, the specificity about who does what, and just to make it very, very clear. So we've had a couple of school districts in the St. Louis area. Pretty much, maybe if they didn't take our exact model MOU, they had the, the elements to it that we felt would be best for children. And so um, those districts have been Webster Groves, um, the City of St. Charles School District, and um, then St. Louis Public Schools. They don't have exactly our model, but they have the things that we're looking for in an MOU. And so it's, you know, it, it's a little more complicated work than just working with the school district because you've also got the police department. And they're getting a lot of information. You know, there's a lot of people that think there needs to be an armed officer in every school. But there's a lot of data and research that shows that that does not make a child feel safer at school. We need more, we need more uh, social workers. We need more counselors in our school that that's what's going to make our kids feel safe. There was a panel discussion with some high school kids earlier this summer, and their particular school has increased last year increased their number of SROs. And they said, you know, we, you know, they talk to each other, they don't talk to us. And so they really didn't feel like there was any kind of a relationship. So we are really wanting our schools to look at, is this really where you need to be spending your money? Also, if it, you know, if we want to get down to that very definite thing. 
Um, do you want to spend, you know, $500,000 on SROs or, or $750,000 on SROs for a school year? Is that helping the kids? Really? Is it helping them? Or would that money we feel would be better spent with counselors and so, social workers to help our kids when they have difficulties? So we're, you know, that's an ongoing thing with the MOUs and the school resource officers. It's really going to take a mind shift for some people because since the days of three strikes you're out and zero tolerance, this has been the solution. You need an SRO in every, every school building. And now we're saying, not, no, that's not what the research is showing. Not to put down our SROs. There are some that have done an excellent job. They are building relationships with kids and mentoring them and so on. But that, unfortunately, that's not always the situation. And so we need to do what's best for our kids. And a lot of times it's setting that guidance ahead of time so that once an incident occurs, that, that officer is trained and they know the parameters and it's not relying on, on like you said, the, the, if you will, the policing and the street training, which right. is a, another issue right. that they then bring into the school. So, so right. part of it is getting everybody to think about these things ahead of time, set the parameters so everybody knows where their responsibility is. That's right. and, and, and we can then tell when someone steps outside of their, their responsibility. Right. And making sure everybody at school knows, you know, just because a child is getting on your last nerve doesn't mean you call in a police officer. Right. And we know that that can happen. That's reality. Um, we also know that, unfortunately, kids do come to school and do some pretty serious things. And, you know, then you do have to get law enforcement involved. But as an everyday thing, not so much. Right. So the, the one other thing that the t Education Task Force has been, is in sort of overseeing and working on is um, uh, school board elections. Um, and we had a little bit of of work on that this past, well, June, it should have been April, but it got bumped back because of the COVID response. So what types of things were we working on this past June? Well, yeah, it did get to be a really interesting municipal election season since it got moved, as you said. And so mostly what we did, more of an information kind of thing, because we do not support candidates, we support issues, but we did put some information out there just through social media at that point of, you know, this is where you can go to find out about your, your school board candidates. Um, there's always the voter's guide that the League of Women Voters puts out, which is excellent. And, um, but you can sometimes find more information on the school's website uh, and so on. And so, and if we knew of any um, candidates who were having a, a forum, we tried to get that information out to people also, because some of them did have forums online um, before, right before the election. So everybody was kind of scrambling um, with the, the shutdown and everything. But we got that information out there. Um, we really need, people really need to get involved and, and get educated about their school board elections. Um, it's really easy with those municipal elections just to not worry about it too much, you know, and, and all of that. But, you know, the municipal elections are the things that affect us every day. And even if you have grown kids or don't have children, never had children or whatever, that election, that school board election is important. You know, as they tell us, that's what people look at when they're buying a house in a neighborhood. You know, how are the schools? And so um, we need to be aware of those. And who are these people? 
um, making these decisions about our community, about our children, and getting involved with those with those elections and maybe even deciding to run for a school board position. Uh, you don't have to be a teacher or administrator to do that. In fact, anyway, but they're very important. So we wanted to just get information out there and raise awareness about it and make sure that people were clued into that and to vote. And of course, we want people to vote in every election. And as we say in MCU, uh, you know, one of the areas of power that we have in our advocacy is people power and people power in a democracy translates to votes, getting out the vote. Um, And so when we show up, when parents show up and express their interest at the, at the ballot box, as, as well as at school board meetings, that's power demonstrated towards the school board and they know who's paying attention and who they need to respond to that. Absolutely. 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 MCU is always inviting people into our discussions, into action and activity. So someone's listening out there. The education task force seems like a really good opportunity to to get your feet wet with with MCU. So what's the process if someone wants to participate with the education task force? Well, we meet on the fourth Thursday of the month of course, via Zoom by now. And so if I think probably the best way to get connected is to go to the website, uh, MCU's website, and um, leave your information there. And um, we will get into contact with you and get the Zoom connection to you so you can join in with us and um, you know, help us do this work for our children, for all of our kids. Also, our website has, you know, name and address and phone numbers, too. So if you're old school like me, you'll get the phone number and call in and give your information. And and the person who who answers the phone can give the information to one of us on the task force as well as uh, possibly, uh, you know, doing that on the website as well. Hey, great. So I want to thank our guest today, Barbara Johnson of the MCU Board of Directors and Education Task Force and Carolyn Randazzo, also of the MCU Education Task Force. To learn more about MCU, go to our website of mcustlewis.org. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events and, and find out what our next activities are. If you want to participate, you can find those details on our website and social media outlets. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.